This is an encore presentation from Veritas Radio. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is researcher Melinda Leslie, Abductions and Covert Ops. Although I was already familiar with Melinda's research and experience, I had the privilege of meeting Melinda at the 2010 International UFO Congress. I also met the subject of one of her cases, Miara Isley. My original intention was to have them both on a show to discuss covert ops and military abductions, since they both appeared together at a recent Coast to Coast AM episode. However, there is so much information to discuss that I deemed it more appropriate to conduct one show with each. Miara will be with us in two weeks. Next week's special guest is Cliff High to discuss the latest Shape of Things to Come report. And if you have read the latest report, you don't want to miss next week's show. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, the Magic or Forum, and the Veritas chat room. Don't wait. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And to those of you who want to listen to the entire show but cannot afford it, this is another reminder that from now until April the 30th, I'm giving you six months instead of three. If you are ready, willing, and are 100% capable to transcribe a show, go to the free subscription link of our website for more information. And remember, you must contact us on or before April the 30th. After that, the regular three-month offer will return. You do something for Veritas, and we will reciprocate. For updates and news, visit our website, our blog, and for more comprehensive analysis, visit our forum and interact with members around the world. And now, get ready to spend the night with someone respected in the UFO circle. She's also an experiencer. That is her biggest motivator. Although she mainly focuses on her abduction research of others, this show will also take you deep inside what happened to her, the experience, the evidence, the truth. If you think military abductions are just figments of someone's imagination, stop this audio now. If you want to know the truth, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas.
most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases, right there at Jamendo.com. This is Professor John Searle, and you are listening to Veritas. Melinda Leslie has been public with her own abduction experiences for 20 years, researched covert ops involvement in abductions for 17 years, and interviewed over 50 abductees with this involvement. For nine years, Melinda was the director of a UFO lecture series hosting the most prominent names in ufology. In addition to her abduction work, Melinda has been a paranormal researcher for over 25 years and a founding member of the Orange County Paranormal Researchers a group which has conducted formal investigations for nine years. Melinda has been able to recall many of her experiences consciously without the aid of hypnosis. She is what UFO researchers call a conscious abductee. While she has had virtually the entire range of UFO experiences, one of her most dramatic occurred in July 1991 while driving with two friends through the Los Angeles forest. All three experienced a two-hour-long abduction into a metallic craft piloted by gray-type ETs. And directly from Southern California, Melinda Leslie. Hello, Melinda. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And just so that the audience knows, Melinda, you and, you and Niara Isley, another abductee, were together on Coast to Coast AM recently. Yeah. However, I think it's important to explore your cases individually. Niara will be with us in the next few weeks, and uh, you are here today. So each one of you will have your own show, because what you have to say warrants your own show. Melinda, I usually never have the privilege of meeting any of my guests prior to interviewing them. Oh. But I did have I did have that privilege with you, and we spent some time at the International UFO Congress, where I was able to conduct a short but thorough interview with you. But as we usually do on this show, let's explore your background. Take us back all the way back to your childhood, where you grew up, and when did everything change for you? Oh, goodness. That's a long story, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, in Palos Verdes, to be exact, which is uh, uh, I, where I was, well, I was born in Santa Monica. But uh, as a child, you know, you know, I was born in Santa Monica. We lived in Palos Verdes. And, uh, and I spent, oh, all the way through high school in Palos Verdes, and we moved to Irvine, California. And I'm still in Southern California. I'm in, I'll go ahead and say I'm in Newport Beach. I don't mind people knowing. And, uh, and you know, so I've always kind of been a, a SoCal girl. <laughs> And uh, let me see, I, you know, I had a fairly normal childhood, um, except for I was having unusual experiences that I wasn't aware I was having. Um, it all changed, so I'm jumping ahead quite, quite a bit here, to um, when I was approximately, oh, I think I was 20, 29 years old, um, and uh, a, a friend of mine was listening to a radio program called Billy Goodman's The Happening, which was broadcast out of uh, outside of Las Vegas, Nevada at the time. 
And it was kind of, you know, if I say it was, you know, Art Bell before Art Bell, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Sure. And, uh, and, uh, and he actually was mostly a, a, a political program and just started to get into some paranormal subjects. And um, a friend of mine got turned on to it because she was into Native American stuff. They were having a bunch of Native, Amer- Native American guests, and someone she worked with turned her on to it. And suddenly they stopped having the Native American thing and suddenly um, had what was breaking at the time was the Bob Lazar story from Area 51 and S4 and the story of Bob Lazar. Uh, and and uh, at the time, uh, Bob had told his real estate buddy, Gene Huff. Gene Huff had told his friend who he knew had an interest in the subject, John Lear. Sure. John Lear told his friend Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper was going on this radio program talking about the fact that Lazar was taking um, himself and John Lear and Gene Huff. I think he took Gene and John first, or maybe just took Gene and then took Gene and John and then took Cooper as well, but anyways, out to see the test flights. Bill Cooper, you mean William Cooper, William the Cooper. deceased William yeah. Cooper, yeah. yes, okay. Who at the time was very good friends with John Lear, and John had told Bill, and Bill had got on this radio program. Then Bill got John on the radio program, and this was all happening over about a, a two-week period. And, and this friend of mine who had been listening to this radio program talk about Native American stuff is suddenly hearing this other thing and calls me and tells me she thought I might have an interest. Truth is, I didn't really have an interest in the UFO thing. But she said, you've got to hear this. This is really unusual. And, and, and my interest prior to that was only from kind of a new age aspect, you know. And, uh, you, you know, space beings as, as, as you know, um, um, just conscious beings that are bringing information and, you know, that kind of thing. Like channeled Kind of spiritual. You know, that kind of thing. Very spiritual angle of it. Exactly. Yeah. And I really didn't have an interest. I kind of had a negative interest. But she told me about this, and I started listening. It was very interesting. Well, her and I would also take trips out to Sedona, Arizona with other friends, but, you know, two sometimes, over the years, and some other places. And we'd gone up to Yosemite and a bunch of things. And, and we were overdue for one of our trips, like a camping trip. And, and people were saying they were going to go out there and see these test flights. And she, she called me and said, hey, why don't we... Go out there. We've been talking about taking a camping trip. We keep talking about it a lot lately. And she said, why don't we go do this? And that was like on a Thursday. (laughs) And people were going to meet out there on a Saturday. And next thing I know, it's Saturday. And we're driving out through Vegas and out to the town of Rachel, Nevada, and, you know, out to the area. And it, it was, you know, and it was the whatever, it was, you know, Rachel Bar and Grill was still called Rachel Bar and Grill, not the little alien yet. Anyways, so we went out there, and we had a bunch of sightings. And the the radio station had arranged for two busloads of people to go out. When we got out there, those two busloads of people were just leaving. When I say out there, I mean the Black Mailbox, Mailbox Road, the Medlin Ranch, outside of Area 51, along Highway 375, now called the Extraterrestrial Highway. Right. At the time, of course, it wasn't, but, it, you know, that was just a rather recent thing in, within the last 10 years for sure. Um, 
I guess maybe what 2001 or so when when the movie got made and they changed the name. But anyway, so um, but now uh, anyway, so we go out there. We had a bunch of things, and that unlocked something in my belief system, where suddenly it was like, okay, I'm not just seeing one craft. I'm seeing multiple things. I'm seeing things that absolutely defied physics. I'm seeing these glowing objects come up from behind the hills, uh, go up at weird zigzag patterns, suddenly come to a stop, and then shoot straight up, like a shooting star going straight up. And then I saw things coming. There was a cloud coverage that night. It ended up raining in the morning, but it hadn't rained yet, but it built to this very heavy cloud coverage at about 12,000 feet. We saw these glowing objects dropping out of the clouds, like illuminating the clouds as they dropped out of them. They would come below the clouds, hover, and then all of a sudden do a falling leaf pattern or zigzag at sharp angles down to the base. And now I know things you know, can't fly like zigzag, like shoot really fast, stop on a dime, and then turn. You know? right. And so I was seeing stuff that defied what I understood even our most advanced you know, capabilities to be and defied physics as I knew it. And, uh, and it was really mind-blowing to say the least. And, uh, and so I, not only did I say, oh, my God, they exist. They're flying in and out of a known government base, a known military base. So I'm like, okay, the government knows about it. They, first, they exist. Secondly, the government knows about them. Secondly, the, the, the government denies this, so they're lying. And those were like three major belief systems, like just absolutely turned on their head, you know, at that moment. And, uh, and it was so exciting. We went out two weeks later, and I live in Southern California, so we we're making a trip all the way from Southern California. And from here, it's about a roughly five-hour drive to Vegas, and it's about another two and a half hours past Vegas. So, you know, you're talking easily six, well, easily a seven-hour drive, if not eight, you know, seven or eight-hour drive total. So we, we were going all the way out there, and we went again, like I said, two weeks later. And, uh, and then we went out um, again about a month after that. So basically, in a two-month period, we had had three trips out there. And I think the first time was only for one night. The next time was for, like, two or three nights, and the last time was for a couple of nights. And, uh, and each time we went out, we were having sightings and uh, of varying degrees. And one time, a gentleman had a large, very high-powered telescope, and we saw this object come up with, that was glowing orange, and it came up and, and shot out from behind the, you know, where the base is, from behind the hills, and came up over us and arced kind of over us, and... We, we were looking at it through this telescope, and when you saw it through the telescope, you could see that this was a round object with little orange lights around it. And what looked to the naked eye like just a single orange glow actually was individual little lights in a circle. And, uh, and this thing came up and arced over us, went oh, kind of over those mountains, then were behind us on the other side of 375. We had our back to the highway, but in that direction. And then so you turned around, and then it stopped, and then it shot straight up. And, it, you know, that night there were probably, oh, I don't know, at least 50, maybe 100 people out there, you know, who saw that that night. But anyway, so... And, and this is with your naked eye. This, this is naked without eye. using yeah, infrared. With, with the naked eye, and and like I said, it, it now it turned out, and all of this reminded me that I had actually had a sighting 
that the time I was certain of and had kind of conveniently forgotten about or gone into denial about, um, in 87 in Sedona, Arizona, over the you know, infamous harmonic convergence, I was one of those people in Sedona, Arizona with thousands of others over the harmonic convergence, hundreds of thousands, maybe, I don't know how many people are out there, a hell of a lot. And, and, uh, and we were at someone's home one day, long story short, and someone had received like a, what they said was like a telepathic message that if we went outside right away, we were doing like a group meditation. And someone said, if we go outside, we're going to have a sighting. And we went outside and we're all like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, but we all went out, poured into the driveway and the street of this house. And sure enough, we saw what, now I don't know if it was one object with three lights, but we think it was three separate objects. There were three orange lights in a triangle that were moving around in the sky, very erratic, and we watched them for a couple of minutes, and then they just shot off really fast. And, and they were three orange lights in a triangle formation. Now, I remember seeing blue sky between them. So I don't think it was a solid object. It may have been, but I don't think so because I remember that we, it was you know clear blue sky, and we were seeing blue sky between them. So they, but they were, no matter how they flew in this erratic pattern, they kept the exact formation. You know? and, uh, and I had seen that in 87. But that didn't... You know, I guess given the state of mind and what I was doing in Sedona, it was like expected. It was exciting, but it was expected. For some reason, seeing these things fly in and out of, of Area 51 and, and, or, or S4 or whatever, but, you know, in the, that area, the Groom Lake sure. area, to see them come up and to see them come in and out of that base. And there were also the, the white Bronco security cars driving by us all the time, going back and forth on the hills with binoculars. You could see them. And then there were helicopters in the air. So here's the white Broncos. Here's helicopters flying around. And then here's these other things moving from, you know, up above the clouds, dropping below them, and you know, et cetera. And, and then, like I said, all three times we had, we had sightings out there. And it just unlocked something not only in my belief system, where my belief system changed overnight, but it unlocked something in my memory. And I started to have dreams at night of being a, uh, a little kid. My grandmother had a house in Yucca Valley, California. And I'll just refresh people's memories. Now, this was in the early 60s, but in the 50s, Yucca Valley was very famous for the whole contactee movement and giant rock and you know, all that stuff. And But my grandmother wasn't into that at all. In fact, she was kind of negative about it. Um, but in the 60s, when I was little and stuff, we'd go out to her place in Yucca Valley. And I apparently was having abductions from there as a child. Um, but here it was something about, like I said, those having all these sightings over this, this two-month period unlocked something in my mind where I started to remember childhood experiences. And then I also was having dreams of childhood experiences you know so i in my sleep at night i was having dreams of childhood experiences and then in early 90 i became aware that i was having current present time experiences actually i guess late 89 this was uh i guess all this started this was august of 89 was the first time we went out there i think was the actually i think it was the very last weekend in august of 1989 was our first time out there and and then and then over a two month period, like I said, we had gone out there through through September and October. We went out there another two times. And uh, anyway, so you know, I had these sightings. It was like inserting a key and turning it, and all of a sudden, I had these dreams and these memories start to happen. Quite frankly, I I thought I was losing my mind. I didn't think it was abduction. I just said, oh, this is crazy. You know, I'm having sightings and it's making me think all this stuff. You know, and um, 
I ended up meeting a researcher telling him he recommended a hypnotherapist. And also out at Area 51, I had also met separately, I'd met Bill Hamilton out there and became pretty good friends with him. Uh, you know, Bill Hamilton, the researcher. And uh, and I I ended up saying some stuff to Bill about it, and he was certified in hypnosis. And he said, I, I do hypnosis, and can I do some hypnosis on you? And he had to kind of twist my arm and talk me into it. And we he actually kind of tricked me into it a little bit in, in that we went to dinner one night, and I met him for dinner somewhere, and and he said, I want to do this, you know, let's, let's do this right now, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and I was really re- resistant, but anyways, I went for it. And um, not only were we looking at a, a current experience, um, something recent that had happened, but in the middle of the regression, I went from re- recalling this current thing we were looking at, a period of missing time and a specific experience, and suddenly I flipped to being 15 years old and, and having experience at the age of 15, a very traumatic experience because suddenly I went from having experience I'm remembering calmly and talking as an adult and then Bill could tell you know he told me later it was obvious that suddenly something was very different and he said where are you what's happening and it was very traumatic and he and he and he thought to ask how old are you and without missing a beat I said I'm 15 you know and so suddenly I had this experience you know remembering that came up in regression. So, okay, I've had childhood experiences I'm remembering, I'm having current time experiences, and boom, here's one when I'm 15 as a teenager, and it's like, oh, wow, this is too much, you know. And another friend of mine recommended a a, a psychotherapist, um, and I went to her, but she was also someone who had worked with abductees, and she regressed me, and... um, and I, and I continued this, so this is going into 1990 now, I was continuing to have occasional current, you know, experiences at that time. And these were all alien experiences. But, so that's kind of, that's a long story, but that's how it all started. <laughs> and the reason why you say they were all aliens is because later in the show, we're going to be talking about the non-alien abductions. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in 91, well, tell me when you want to get into that, but that, that no, all, that's fine. That Keep all going for me in... in well, actually, I didn't really realize that till '93. But I had actually had, in actually, I had had two experiences in 1990 um, that I was in some form of denial about. And in '93, I realized not only did I have more experiences, but I had also had some. Anyways, do you want me to go ahead and get into that? Yeah, oh, sure. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, um, it turned out I had a, a. Well, let's go to '93. It turned out I had an experience in '93 that made me realize I was having um, what's now referred to in ufology as my lab experiences or MILAB. Um, and, uh, but they were experiences that involved military personnel. And, um, and basically, MILAB or my lab is just an acronym naming M-I-L-A-B for military abduction, right. um, which, which a lot of people think means you know, like in lieu of alien, and it doesn't, I'll get more into this, but it, it doesn't mean in lieu of an alien experience. My research is that this is happening to people because they've had the alien experience. Um, so what had happened in 93, I had an experience where I was um, taken from my home and um, taken to, this was August of 93, I had an experience where I'm taken from my home by guys in camouflage, and I remember... Um, um, being taken to a uh, 
an underground base and having a medical procedure performed on me. And uh, and it, in this particular instance, well, actually, I I have to reclarify that because I'm confusing it with a little with another one briefly. It, actually, going back to this one, is I remember having a, an experience where I have an abduction, but I am taken to a a military base and I am with humans, and it's all humans except for my initial memory was the end of the experience. There's this end of having this full-blown medical procedure in what I call a hazmat, hazardous material handling, clean room environment. When I say clean room, I mean like a tented room, tented in plastic. The the, the other people in it other than me, um, in other words, the, the people performing the medical procedure and any of the other personnel involved were all in these clean room, uh, clean suits, these white baggy suits with a hood over their head and a shield in front of their face and, you know, in, in what you would see in like a, a clean room environment for like manufacturing. Not so much hazardous materials handling where they have to have the air hose and the, quite the large suit, but this is a little bit closer fitting, more like one might see in a, in a clean, in a, in a, like I said, a manufacturing kind of environment. Um, but they were performing a medical thing on me, so I don't think it was a hazardous thing where they, you know, a biological hazard by any means. They Almost like a surgical room. A surgical room, but a very sterile one where they were completely covered in this clean room thing. And and I remembered that this room had been filled with a heavy mist um, and that I had had protection put over my ear, uh, my ears, my nose and mouth, and then I had had oxygen to breathe. And I was protected from it getting in my ears, eyes, nose, or mouth. Um, but yet my whole body, of course, I didn't have anything on, was exposed to this heavy mist. And I remember afterwards, because they cleaned up everything and they removed the protection from me, so I smelled the after effects of the wet environment of the room, and it smelled like really heavy-duty Bactine, you know, like antiseptic, really strong. Right. So I think that's what this mist was. But it was done so strong that they had to have me protected where, well, it was okay to get on my skin. They didn't want it, me to breathe it in, you know. Did they use any ultraviolet light to see any any kind of a yeah. sign? Well, back then, that wasn't known in abduction research to do that, so I didn't think to do that back then. Mm-hmm. Since um, finding out about that, mostly through the work of Daryl Sim, I guess Daryl Sims is where I originally heard it, um, I have checked myself. I have not come up with anything unusual. Um, I have other forms of physical evidence and stuff, but it, but I've had no markings come up with the ultraviolet. Now, I haven't always checked myself, but when I have thought to, I've looked. Um, someone else questioned that I may not have been using a bright enough light uh, or the right kind necessarily. I was just using a, a black light bulb. But um, but I have I checked with a black light bulb and I haven't seen anything. Um, I haven't always thought to do that after an experience, but um, but I have done it periodically and and nothing is nothing's come up. Um, Where do you think you were? Where do you think location wise? In that particular incident, um, I, I can't be exactly sure. I'm I, I all I could do is speculate, but I really don't know mm-hmm. in that particular incident. And and in that one, um, what what I started to say though was after they cleaned me up and everything, there's one point where they're leading me down a hallway, and I think I've been you know cleaned up and dressed and stuff, and I think I'm like leaving to go home, and uh, and they're taking me down this hallway, and when all of a sudden I'm hit in the back by something that 
like something poked me in the lower back. And two steps after this thing poked me, and I was being my I was being escorted by people down this hallway, so I couldn't really turn really quick. Next thing I knew is my legs came out from under me, but the people escorting me held me and helped me slowly to the floor. So I didn't go crashing to the floor. Right. They lowered me to the floor. But what I realized had poked me where there were two grays, and one of them had this rod in his hand, and that's what had poked me. So suddenly there were grays in the hallway and that had poked me in the back. And what happened is th- these humans basically handed me off to these grays who took me in another area, did an additional like examination, I think just to kind of check me out, like a quick you know, checkup kind of thing. And then they brought me back. And later in regressions and stuff, now most of that, I, everything I'd said so far, I'd remembered pretty much consciously. Uh, and then I later in regressions came up with that I'd also been taken by grace. So in this experience, now that's going to sound, all this I'm sure sounds odd to people, but you know, the idea of, of humans and aliens together sounding particularly crazy, but this is actually really common in the cases I work with in this and the cases where other researchers have had with these military involvement experiences. I've, I've worked with over 50 people who've had this happen um, pretty in-depth, and I'm familiar with uh, other researchers who've worked with um, you know, anything from that many to as many as hundreds of cases of this. So at this point, I can safely say I am familiar with hundreds of cases of this, and, uh, and, and my experience is, while different from some, it's typical to others, but it, it's in the range of typical for this kind of thing. Now, not everyone, for instance, there's a variety of things that happen, and we can get more into, into that. But in, in that experience, that's what happened. And then, and then November of 93, I had another experience, but this one, there was no aliens involved at all. I was just taken by humans. And in that incident, I was actually awoken in my bed one night by two guys in camouflage, ripping my covers off my bed, and then drugging me with uh, drops in a dropper that were dropped into my mouth. And, uh, and I was put on a stretcher and maneuvered around the room. I passed out, but I ended up being, long story short, I got taken again to a different underground base. Or I don't know if it was different, but to a underground base. And I was interrogated about alien technology. Um, apparently, there was a specific piece of alien technology I had seen that they were very interested in and were asking me specific things about it. And... Uh, and it was a whole very uh, elaborate procedure of what I now know of, of as kind of like mind control techniques um, that that were involved, and uh, and the, the questioning about the technology and a lot of fear and intimidation stuff that was done, and uh, but in that experience I was taken and brought back by humans and without any aliens involved. During the interrogation, were you conscious? Yes. Oh, very much so. Now, I'd been drugged heavily, but I I retained consciousness. There were certain procedures done, of course, some fear and intimidation stuff to have me uh, for, forget part of it, some stuff now that I know through research is things done in some mind control-related activities. And uh, But, um, but I, I remembered uh, parts of it consciously. I've had regressions to fill in parts. Um, I worked predominantly with one therapist on this, but then another one also. So uh, over that experience alone, I've had, I'd, oh, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
I don't know, um, at least six regressions and probably more like ten regressions over that over that one experience. Because I well, let me see, three, maybe six, let's say seven regressions over that one experience, and and I've done a lot to recall stuff consciously about it between between what I remembered consciously to begin with, what's come up in the regressions, and then conscious like each regression would then between regressions I'd have more conscious memory. So it's a mixture of conscious memory and regression piecing that all together. And then and then and then um a couple years later I ran into an old roommate of mine who had been a roommate of mine in nineteen ninety and uh, a, a a friend, a lady, and, and her daughter lived with us briefly, her 14-year-old daughter, it, it, long story, but lived with us very briefly. And years later, I met, I ran into her again, and she said, are you still doing the abduction stuff? I said, yeah, and we, we were talking about it, and I talked all about the fact that, you know, this was three or four years later, and I was really doing the, the military involvement stuff, uh, you know, heavily. And I was telling her about that, and she said, oh, I'm so glad you know. And I said, what, what? <laughs> she said, I'm so glad you know now, and I, I go, I know what now? You know, what do you, what do you mean? And she said in 1990, particularly one event, but I think she referenced that there was more than one occasion where when her daughter lived with us, that they were both awoken in the night by what they said were military men shouting orders at me, and I was crying and pleading no, no. Particularly one time that was very upsetting because she said, do you remember when my daughter moved out and why? And I go, yeah, yeah, I remember, you know, you were separated from your husband. She missed her dad. She missed her old school friend. She wanted to go back to her dad, even though they fought terribly, which is what I'd always heard about, but she missed him. And she said, well, okay, that's the story we gave you. Why she really moved out was what she witnessed happening to you scared her so bad she wanted to get out of there. And she said she really moved out because of what was happening to you, really freaked out my 14-year-old daughter. She never told you? They never told me then. She didn't tell me till now when she said, oh, I'm so glad you know. And why? I said, well, she moved out because she missed her dad. And they, she said, I, and I said, why didn't you tell me then? And she said, you were so freaked out about your alien abductions that she said, we, we, we thought this would like be too much for you to handle. We mm. were afraid to bring it up, that we had, wit- had witnessed military people in the house ordering you around and stuff. They were like, because we kept waiting for you to bring it up. And when you never said anything, they said you were so freaked out. I mean, at the time, I was seeing a psychotherapist saying, I must be crazy. You know? So, you know, they were like, you were really freaked out. I mean, this was early 1990, and you totally thought you were losing your mind and you were freaked out about your alien experiences. And she said, we were afraid to tell you. And I said... So hold on, hold on. Let me. I hate to interrupt you, but yeah. you had two witnesses there yeah. witnessing what was happening to you, yeah. and they never told you. I wonder if the military personnel actually threatened them if they talked. No, no. She said no. She said they they kept real quiet, and you know, like they they were afraid to make any noise. They didn't know what was going on. At first, they thought the first time it happened, they said we thought maybe you had friends over, but then we realized what. The conversation that was going on was harsh and, and, and loud, and, you know, why would you have had friends over? You know, maybe it was a weeknight or something, you know, and uh-huh. that the, it was clear. She said once we listened that it was clear that it was like military people. And she said, How were they watching? Were they behind a door listening? They were, well, they were my roommates. They were in the room next to mine in another bedroom. You know, were they watching or just listening? They were just, they could just hear it through the wall. They were just okay. awoken by 
conversations in my room, and they thought, well, that's rude from one day friends over in the middle of the night, you know. Sure. And then they realized it didn't sound like friends. It sounded like, she said it was military men shouting orders at you. And she said, you know, or ordering you. I mean, they weren't shouting. They were probably aware that there were other people now, but she said, you know, they didn't seem to be too concerned, apparently, with how loud they were, because she said, I mean, I have no memory of this. She, this is, I'm just going by what she said. She said, military men were shouting orders at you, and you were crying and pleading, no, 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 I don't want to, don't take me, you know, and that's what she says. I have no memory of it. And did they take you at that time? I don't know. I have no memory of it, and I haven't been mm. regressed over that. And, and she actually said that they witnessed this happening more than once. There was one time in particular that, that was... That was really particularly frightening just because they were shouting at me in the way I was crying and pleading and freaked out her 14-year-old because they knew I had no idea. And, and she said, it, the 14-year-old just said, I can't, I can't be here, to, you know, and it scared her to death. And, but they didn't tell me that then. I, I was told she missed her dad and her old friends and wanted to move back. And, you know, <laughs> that's the story I was given. And then, um, and, and then, then, you talked to it when you first introduced me about the experience of being taken with two friends uh, while driving over Angeles Crest Highway. We're going out to the Lancaster Palmdale area, myself and two fellow researchers, two guys, and, and we were going out to an area known for, that was a hot spot for sightings at the time, out in the Tehachapi area, and we were driving out there. And we took the shortcut over the hill because you could cut off about an hour. We'd driven it before. We've driven it since. We knew how long it should take, and we had a period of missing time. It was predominantly an alien experience, although, and I should clarify, you know, just for sake of being accurate, two of the three of us in regressions remembered seeing a man in military uniform in the background like he was monitoring the procedures, and that was July of 90. That would have been after, probably after these other experiences, but that was, but anyways, you know, the other ones being maybe, sometime in the spring of 90, going into maybe the beginning of summer. I'm, I'm not sure. The roommate didn't clarify the time, other than it was definitely 90, and I think early 90. And then, and then this was July of 1990 when I had this experience with the, with the two friends. Now, I'm not aware of any additional military-related things until 93, but then August and November of 93, I had two where I had a lot of conscious memory, and that's what started me looking into it. And when I started to talk to researchers in the field and to, and to other abductees, I found out very quickly I was not alone. Other people were having this happen. And then shortly thereafter, um, you had uh, Carla Turner talking about and writing about her cases, in, um, and then uh, Helmut Lammer writing his book. So kind of in 93-94, in this broke in abduction research and in ufology in a big way where you had multiple cases sharing what was happening to them. Uh, uh, Kay Wilson, uh, Leah Haley, Kim Carlsberg. Kim Carlsberg, Whitley Strieber. Yeah. You had different people saying, hey, I've got this other stuff going on, you know. And and, and then you had Helmut Lammer write some articles for the MUFON Journal, which were a precursor to the fact he was at the time working on a book, but the articles got published before the book was out. And then his book came out about, well, it's actually, I think his book came out two years later. And his articles came out, I think, in 94, and the book came out in, um, in I think, 97. 96, and then 99. Yeah, yeah, 96, maybe. So anyway, so, you know, but, uh, but, but two years prior is when the articles were coming out in the MUFON Journal. And, um, 
and uh, and as well as you know, Carla Turner had her book taken um, with those experiences. I think that was ninety four. So you know, in about ninety four, this really started breaking, you know, in a way within ufology. But it turned out, you know, when I had the experiences in 93 and I was talking to researchers and other abductees, I was finding out that other people had these experiences. And I didn't really set out to investigate other people's stuff. I was kind of trying to figure out what happened to me. And and then I started talking to other people and researchers, and then it kind of snowballed. And then Carla Turner, when, you know, she was still alive, and she said, Melinda, you've really got to do this. You've got to you got to speak up. You've got to share your experiences. I had already um, gone public with my abduction stuff, um, mostly because of someone, uh, Penny Harper, who, who had put on a lecture series in L.A., was having a panel of experiencers, and she was the first person to encourage me to be public. She said, hey, I'm having this panel. Will you be on it? I was on the panel, then she had another panel, said, hey, will you do it again? I did it again. And then, she, and then she asked me to give my own lecture. She said, you need a whole lecture just yourself. So I had already gone forward in, oh, 90, 91, you know, with, you know, with my own uh, uh, abduction experiences. And just so that the audience knows, I've had people on the show talking about programmed life forms. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about grace, in, the, in one of your first, uh, when you were discussing that you were taken and you were propped in the, in the, propped in the back and uh, you fell on the floor mm-hmm. and then you were taken over by grace, could this be real extraterrestrials or could they be programmed life forms that were cloned as part of the our own purposes? Well, um, I have a question for you. How the heck would you know? I, you know, I wouldn't. I mean, a gray, That's why I'm gray asking the gray. How would you know? Yes, you know, exactly. And so, um, they seem completely sentient, functioning on their own. They took charge of the situation. The humans walked away after they handed me over to them. I was escorted into by the grays into an, another room, a, a different kind of facility. Um, not like the hazmat room. This was kind of more of a high-tech thing. It seemed like their environment, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, that there was alien stuff, although it was just down the hallway and in another room from my memory. Um, but then from there, I was, you know, taken on a ship and brought back, basically. So um, that's the memory I have um, and what's come up in regression to try to make the experience make sense. And I was actually resistant to saying, no, 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 I'm sure humans must have brought me back. You know, but then through regressions, it just, you know, it was very clear that that's, that it it appeared anyways that you know that i the end of the experience was an alien experience now back then i i was like resistant to that idea because i'm like oh this is crazy that you know come on are they really involved together like this and but as i've researched it now you know 18 years later this is like this is this is common you know this is what happens now there you know there are experiences um in fact i should probably back up for a minute and talk about the different things that can happen to people that fit into my research. Should I do that? Sure. Okay. Uh, And by the way, just to let the audience know, I'm stepping back a lot on this interview because there's so much to absorb. I know. And then once we get the real picture, I'm going to start asking you questions, but please go ahead. Yeah. Um, I admit I'm quickly glancing at a list here just because it's easier than doing it off the top of my head. (laughs) Uh, But... um, and not in any particular order, but this is this is the stuff that qualifies someone for the kind of case I, I research. First off, um, I've gotten to a point where I need 
to be certain that when I start looking at a case that they're an alien abductee first. First and foremost, it's like, um, yes, I've had people come to me that might be having other military kind of stuff happen or whatever. I usually refer them on, depending on the nature of what they're saying, to either someone in a therapeutic capacity (laughs) or someone in mind control research Um, because that's too big of a subject for me to get into. I kind of, I, I don't really have an interest in the mind control thing other than how it relates to this. And uh, so I've had to, you know, kind of kicking and screaming, I've, I've had to get into mind control research just to understand how it fits. But I've decided that's too big of an area and I, it, it's, it's a very muddy, <laughs> quagmired area I don't wish to get into. But I can't ignore it because it's certainly a part of this. But, so, but for clarity... First of all, I work with people. When I say work with people, I'm not a hypnotherapist. I'm not a therapist of any kind. I'm just a researcher investigator. But right. as I started to look into my own experiences, I met other people who had this happen, talked to researchers who had cases of this, and it's just kind of snowballed, and here I am. Um, and, you know, like I said, Carla Turner said, you've got to do this. This You need to, you know, push, you know, and she was she was uh, uh, quite an inspiration to me as well. Um but anyway, so so again, someone's an abductee first. And when I say an abductee, they're a classic alien abductee. This is usually someone who's had multiple experiences, has a lot of conscious memory of it, has some physical evidence for having the experiences. Um, Joe Montaldo, a, a researcher who in the past couple of years I've become real good friends with, he runs the ICAR organization. Are you familiar yes. with Joe? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and. He's, in just like the last two years, really got into researching this. He had had it come up in cases that ICAR worked with, but really didn't look at it as an independent, you know, subject until kind of prodded by me. And he started to look back at his case records to say, well, how much of this do I have? You know, how much does this come up? And that kind of thing. And uh, and and as he did that, he he came up with an idea that 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 I subscribe to too, which is the idea that this tends to happen to advanced abductees. And not advanced meaning they're anything better or anything better, you know, they're not smarter, brighter, faster, you know, whatever. Um, Advanced just means they're an advanced case. In other words, this is someone who's had multiple experiences probably throughout their life, has had a variety of things, you know, obviously has had eggs and sperm removed and been shown hybrid children, has probably had hybrid everything from babies to teenagers to adults. You know, an advanced case is someone who's got that whole history. An advanced case is someone who's probably had psychic training and psychic abilities in their experiences and outside of their experiences. An advanced case is someone with a lot of evidence. An advanced case is someone who's probably also felt they've had very positive experiences. You know, they've had a variety. Now, not everyone fits this, but they tend to be, you know, cases that are pretty far along and have probably been researched, have probably at some point been researched to some degree, have worked with one of the well-known hypnotherapists. Again, not in every case. You know, none of this is absolute. But I do notice these tend to be people who are pretty far along in their abduction experience and have a full range of experiences. So anyway, and by the way, the, the first time I ever heard the term re-abduction, re-abs, yeah. was through Joe. Yes. Well, actually, that's I came up with that, and I told him. <laughs> oh, okay. There so you go. gives me credit six, for that. Six and, degrees of separation. Yeah, and, and re-abduction um, means two things. It's, it's a play on words, of course. It means being re-abducted. Okay, you know. It also means um, 
So it means being re-abducted. So where you're, you first are abducted by aliens and then you're re-abducted by military. Okay. But it also is R-E-ABS, like MILABS. Okay. This is R-E-ABS. Well, what's R-E-ABS? R-E-ABS is reverse engineered abductees. And because that's what I think they're actually doing, like, you know, with crash retrievals. Okay. Sure. UFO crash retrievals. They're picking them up, reverse engineering, back engineering, applying that technology to human technology or developing technology that duplicates it or mimics it, you know. Clever. Well, yeah. So that's, you know, that's, if anyone follows the crash retrieval stuff and, you know, all the cases of crash retrieval, certainly the work of Ryan and Bob Wood and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So we tried to make this craft, we're trying to re-engineer these crafts so we can use them. And here we're trying to reverse engineer what happened to you. With reverse engineering the craft, it's more about developing human technology that mimics or duplicates the alien technology. So it's not like we're trying to reinvent the alien technology because that doesn't work for our pilots and stuff. But they're like, can we develop human stuff that does the same thing? You know, and uses some of the stuff we've learned from that. You know, that kind of thing. So reverse engineering the abductee is the same thing. And it's twofold. One is, are they trying to figure out how and why someone is abducted, what makes them an abductee, how do you abduct someone, you know, so they're that kind of literal reverse engineering, and mm. the genetics, can we create someone like this, you know, so they're reverse engineering the genetics, they're reverse engineering what, what and how makes you an abductee, but they're also reverse engineering abductees, in other words, using abductees as a source for the technology reverse engineering. In other words, what do you know about the technology, that kind of thing. So I'll get more into that in a second because I realize I kind of know I'm jumping all over the place. But it's so hard to talk about this research in a linear way because it's so multifaceted that you end up covering all these aspects and, you know, one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're off on a tangent because because there's so many levels to it. But so I'm going to take a big healthy step backwards for everybody. Um, So what happens to the abductees? And this is the kind because I started to give this listen then never did, um, so I'll just go through this. Um, you can being so for instance the abductee can be watched or followed um, at home or at their workplace, having their home or workplace under surveillance. Um, so that's one. Two, two would be a black helicopter surveillance and harassment. That's very common for abductees. Uh, having threats made to an abductee uh, to their family or to their friends. Um, so you can be threatened, your family or friends can be threatened, um, that kind of thing. Phone interruptions, and which can be harassing and intimidating phone calls and even threatening phone calls. It can be everything from having just clicks and stuff on your phone. Now, that you know, there can be all sorts of normal explanations for that. But if it tends to happen when you're specifically talking about this subject, um, when you're talking to a researcher or another abductee, that kind of thing, it, it may sound obvious, like someone's picking up a third line. Sometimes people have heard voices in the background or have heard breathing or, you know, anything like that. Um, and then it can actually become where there's threatening and intimidating phone calls, everything from phone calls at odd hour of night where people might hang up and stuff, but that happen to increase right during the time that you're uh, specifically you know, looking into your case or researching it or getting hypnosis, you know. So then also, uh, like I said, the phone interruptions and threatening phone calls. Um, 
email and snail mail tampering and computer hacking. Um, It used to just be people would say, you know, I mailed something to a researcher. When they opened it, it had obviously been open and retaped, or they only got, Mm. I sent them four things and they only got two, or, or, they sent me something and, you know, or, you know, or the abductee got some, something by another abductee or by a researcher and they didn't get it all, that kind of thing. Um, obvious mail tampering. But then, of course, you know, as years went by, it became where there was more and more cases being reported to me of email tampering and computer hacking. Um, I have one case in particular, has had a lot of sightings as well as his abductions, as well as the, the my lab experience. Um, which happened to him in another country, you know, and uh, and but he's a but he's a U.S. citizen. He lives here, but he was traveling and had it happen somewhere else. Um, and uh, and he had an experience where his computer was being hacked into, and all these photos he was taking of sightings, and those files they weren't just taking the photos; they were taking the whole file folders. You know, it was were showing up missing, and yet none of his other stuff would. So it was very specific that it was specifically this subject. You know, that kind of thing. Um. Another thing is uh, in-person, direct face-to-face confrontation and warnings. Sometimes the abductee is, is approached. Obviously, this also includes men in black kind of experiences, which is common. Or not common, but, you know, happens to some abductees. But sometimes it's not the men in black scenario. Sometimes it's plainclothes people. You know, I know one abductee who's, I always tell this story, but she was a dealer in Vegas. She worked in Vegas, dealing at her table. The customer comes up, sitting at the table in front of the other customers, and proceeds to threaten her and warn her and tell her we know, you know, and you know whatever she. But in front of the other customers, they didn't care that the other people heard. In fact, that probably added to the intimidation quality of it. Um, oh. that, that kind of thing. I have other experiences of people who've had lots of uh, in-person and you know face-to-face confrontations and warnings. Um, another abductee I know went on a blind date with someone. Uh, she met him on the internet. <laughs> you know, okay, goes on a goes on a meets him, goes on a date, sitting at a restaurant. He proceeds. You know, she thinks it's a normal date. Everything seems to be going fine. He oh proceeds. my! So it, it, it's one of those people that actually invited her out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and it turns out that this person proceeds to say we're. I'm here to tell you not to talk about this. You're to drop out this, that, and the other. And she had two grown sons um, that lived in another state than where she was. Um, they, this guy proceeded to give her great details about her son's day-to-day lives. In other words, they'd been monitoring her sons closely. You know, oh. this is where they work. This is when they go to work. This is when they come home. This is where they shop. This is blah, blah, blah. You know, obviously making it very clear they'd monitored them closely. And, and, and then they proceeded to say, you're to drop out or your sons will be hurt. You know, that kind of thing. So, but I mean, I, I have a lot of cases of this. I mean, this is the kind of extreme stuff that happens. Uh, so the intimidation, Melinda, the intimidation is mainly to silence the abductee? Um, well, no, um, it, it's it, it, there's many facets to it. Originally, I thought that, but it, it some of it is to stop the abductee from investigating their own experience. Like, you know, we know you're meeting with a certain researcher, and we don't want you to do that anymore. You know, we know you're talking about this or going public. We don't want you to do that anymore. Um, you know, so sometimes it's about silence. Sometimes it's about not researching or investigating your own experience. I see. Um, you know, they don't want you looking into it. They don't want you doing anything about it. Now, some people um, 
have told me this and 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 did drop out and stuff. So sometimes this is very effective. Some people have just gotten, um, pardon my language, but pissed off, you know. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, some people have gotten, you know, uh, motivated by it and and said, you know, how dare they? And it's and it's motivated them. Now, some people when they when they have this kind of stuff happen, it can increase. It 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 can pick up and escalate to being fairly advanced, and. Uh, and they can start messing with your life. I have a couple of cases of people who've had, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but having your finances messed with, as an example. Um, some people have had this and have, and after having a series of financial problems, have dropped out saying it's not worth it, and as soon as they dropped out and backed away from the subject, their finances magically cleared up. Sure. But, I, but I've had too many cases of that to be by chance. You know, one or two people say that they think that might be happening. You're like, eh, okay, that's, you know. It's just coincidence, you know. But when you start getting a bunch of cases of this reported to you, you kind of go, whoa, you know. And uh, so anyways, let me go on. I'm only about halfway through the list. Um, so uh, so the illegal break-ins to property, homes, and vehicles can be broken into, obviously. Un- underground bases visited, like people being taken to underground bases and seeing advanced technology. Okay, then there's um, abductions by – so these are – I loosely did these in order. There's no exact thing, but I kind of did this like how this stuff can escalate. So some of the stuff I've said already about being watched, being followed, phone interruptions, black helicopter, in-person, face-to-face, some of that can happen and you may never have the re-abduction. You may never have an experience where the military takes you or where ETs take you and hand you off to military. That may never happen. You can just have some of this other stuff and never have the other part. So I include cases that don't necessarily have the reabduction, but if you have any covert human involvement, you know, that's another thing. I call it covert ops involvement as opposed to military involvement now because it's also involves intelligence agencies and there's lab environments and hospital environments and people in lab coats and it's not always people in military uniforms. And that's why I, I try not to use the term my labs with yeah. you because it goes beyond that. Yeah. So I call it so I actually call it covert ops involvement now. Yeah. Um, because I can say it's it's covert, okay, and it's operations, it's covert operations, yeah, okay, you know, and that includes all the above to me, you know, so that's why I call it that, covert ops involvement. And um, so then, um, so you can have kind of those variety of things happen, um, and it can be just low-grade harassment surveillance, and you never have anything else, and then it can escalate, and then, it, you know, more stuff can happen. Um, usually, if you get kind of like halfway through this stuff I'm saying and towards the end of the list, you're probably going to have a, a lot of this stuff happening, you know, if you get far enough along. But anyway, so I'll, I'll go on. Um, then there's ab- abductions by ETs with human military personnel present. In other words, this is predominantly an ET experience, but there can be human military personnel present or you're handed off, as you know, handed over, as I said, by ETs to military personnel. Then there can be abductions by human military. So this is predominantly human experience that just happens to have ETs present. And this, this is common in this. So you can have an ET experience that just happened to have military present. In other words, you can be on a mil- you can it, Everything about it can seem like a very much an ET experience. There just happens to be military personnel present. And then there can be, like I said, handed off where you're have an abduction with ETs, but they hand you over. And then there can be abductions by human military that's predominantly a military experience, but you happen to see an ET present. So there's 
ETs present. Isn't this proof of collusion? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. On some level, you know. I mean, I right. think it's very compartmentalized. And um, I also have reason to think that because of one of my own experiences seem to be very compartmentalized where the right hand did not know what the left hand was doing. And, um, and information's kept from others. So when I think the groups that are involved in this only know that part. They're in, like the guys who pick you up and take you may not, you know, and they take you somewhere and hand you over to someone, they may not know what's happening to you there. All they know is they're the guys who take, who get you, <laughs> you know, but they're not the guys who do the procedures. They're just the guys. And that's who their mission, you. to take you only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have the guys who maybe interrogate you, but they don't know how you got there. <laughs> right. You know, you know, I'm just saying there, it seems to be very compartmentalized in, in a lot of the incidences. Um, so moving right along, then there's, um, and then there could be abductions by human military only without ETs present. You know, obviously, like I had that happen. Other cases have had that where it's purely a human experience without ETs present. So any, in other words, all those combinations exist. And then there's, uh, like I said, mind control procedures, intimidation, fear inducement, hypnosis, and a lot of drugs administered. A lot of drugging happens in these experiences. Then there can be uh, in-depth interrogations and debriefing procedures. And that's why I said if you were fully awake when, when this happened to yeah. you, because if you're drugged and you're interrogated, sometimes if you are under the influence of a drug, you may be able to, to, to talk more, if you will. Yeah, I don't know that the, the drugs are so much to have you talk more. I mean, I guess, yes, they do loosen you up in that regard. It seems to me, from my research in this, is the drugging has more to do with getting the person to, it's their it's these guys covering up their tracks for the experience. It's trying to get, put the, have the abductee forget the experience. I see. You right. know, and, and um, a lot of abductees resist in these experiences. So a lot of the drugging is just to immobilize you. You know, what, one abductee used the term, and it's, it's it kind of shuns, gives me the shivers you know, up my spine when I say this, but I think... It also describes the drugging so well. And she said they used this term when they drugged her. They called it a chemical restraint. And I thought, oh, you know, a chemical restraint. Yeah, you know, when they're trying to restrain the abductee or limit their mobility or limit their ability to function or limit their ability to fight back or limit their ability to run away or whatever, you know. Yeah, okay. And then a lot of drugging happens at the end of the experiences, and I think that's part of the mind control procedures to get the abductee to repress it, to cover it up. You know, you, you use fear, hypnosis, and drugs combined together, and I can tell you these guys have this down to a science. It's not perfect by any means. That's why some people remember. Some people have to do a lot of work to break through and remember one of these experiences. I tell you, though, these experiences are remembered quite often consciously. They tend to be remembered with more conscious recall than the alien experiences. And I think it's because it's not as high strange. You know, the high strangeness, quoting a term Linda Moulton Howe uses. Linda Moulton Howe, yes. But the, the idea of high strangeness of the alien experiences, I think, causes the abductee to have more of a, a comfort level with denying it. You know what I mean? Because you can have the alien experience and go, well, I don't know, that's a dream or this, that, you know, whatever. You know, I think there's a certain amount of denial that comes through the high strangeness of it. It's so bizarre, so otherworldly, so different, you know. And yet these human experiences are 
people, human environments, human vehicles, you know, different things, they tend to have a lot more conscious memory. And I think the familiarity and the everyday kind of sense of the experience makes a person remember it more. And I think As opposed to, to the others, because, as you said, high strangeness, perhaps the technology that they use to induce the amnesia. Exactly. And exactly. I shouldn't rule that out. Of course, of course. The alien's mental ability, the mind scan stuff that they do, combined with their technology, however it is they're getting the abductee to forget, um, could, have a, could be a major factor in that, too, without a doubt. And so these human experiences, even though there's an attempt to, you know, mind wash, you know, brainwash the abductee and get them to forget or whatever, uh, I think they're as good as they are and they have it down to a science, it's not perfect. And the abductee often remembers consciously and with hypnosis can recall the memories. And what they remember is that, you know, the very altered state that the drugs are. And sometimes with some research, you can kind of determine what kind of stuff you were given based upon how it made you feel and how it made you feel afterwards. Because that's another thing is the drugging and stuff from these experiences, at the end of the experience, it's not like you come back and there's no effect of drugs in your body. These people, most of the cases who have the reabduction scenarios, report a whole variety of sickness and stuff they go through in the days afterwards that that most of them think is, is because of the drugs. You know, I've had so many people report all sorts of after effects that they think were caused by the drugs. You know. And Melinda, hold it right there. We have to take our one and only break so you can get some water. Uh, it's after one hour. How do people get in touch with your work, Melinda? Well, I can be found, a, the easiest way is on the internet. On You know, uh, I have a website. Um, if you, I, I share space on somebody's site. So if you go to alienexperiences.com then you look on there and you see my photo and you see Melinda's website then you click on that to go directly to my website but the easiest way is just to go to alienexperiences.com and you can also come to our website and click on Melinda's picture and it'll take you right there folks don't go anywhere this is so fascinating as I said I wanted to step back at the beginning of this interview so that she can give us the framework and we have a lot of questions and a lot of material to discuss on segment 2 so don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Dr. Richard Souter, and you are listening to Veritas. <laughs> 